Welcome back to the Noggin Notes podcast. This is Jake, and this is episode number 28, Understanding Intellectual Disabilities, part three. I'm going to be interviewing Heather Milligan again. She's a North Central University student doing her practicum internship at Zephyr. And as always, the show is brought to you by Zephyr Wellness. Check out zephyrwellness.org to learn more. And also check out the Zephyr Wellness YouTube channel where you can subscribe and get cool videos on how to navigate your life, understand your emotional functioning, apply little tips and techniques, and uh, maybe even just see a, a cute little baby once in a while. That's the Zephyr Wellness YouTube channel. Also follow us, uh, Zephyr underscore wellness on Twitter, and check out the Zephyr Wellness Facebook page, and please like and follow us on there. Without further delay, this is episode number 28 of Noggin Notes, and it's Understanding Intellectual Disabilities, part three. Hope you enjoy it. Thanks for tuning back into the Noggin Notes podcast. My name is Jake Wiskirchen. I'm your host, and I'm here every time hosting <laughs> on behalf of Zephyr Wellness. And uh, this is part three of Exploring Intellectual Disabilities, and I'm joined again by Heather Milligan. Hello. Thanks for being here. Thanks for taking time to do this and uh, letting us pick your brain because you are the resident expert in this area. And I know we're not really allowed to use that term in our field because uh, that's reserved for the courtroom and judges appoint experts. We don't appoint ourselves as experts, but you do have a level of, of experience in here that, that grants a lot of credibility to uh, this field and I appreciate you taking the time. So uh, part one, we talked about uh, the definition of an intellectual disability. It's more of a of a structural deficiency in the brain, uh, something that's more or less perceived as permanent, as opposed to a mental disorder, which is uh, more or less overcomable. And uh, we've evaluated the two and compared them. In part two, we talked about treatment and how we surround people with resources and how we identify folks with intellectual disabilities. And now in part three, we want to talk about what happens to people living with intellectual disabilities after they leave the school system, because that's where a lot of the resources are. They're in the form of the academic environment. And uh, as we mentioned, in the United States anyway, when a person turns 18, they are given full legal uh, capacity to enter into contracts and sign documents, you know, for the most part. You're not still not technically allowed to drink alcohol in most places or smoke marijuana where that's legal, um, but you can, you can vote and you can... You can sign a, a lease agreement, and you can do all sorts of stuff. You can get married. So tell us, Heather, uh, what happens through the childhood experience with the, with the child who has the intellectual disability and the family caring for them, and then what happens as they go through this process into adulthood and so forth? I think with any adulthood transition, there's an expectation that you'll be more independent than you were when you were a child. Oh, yeah, yeah, just like that, right? Magically, yeah. boom, yep. I snap my fingers. You hit 18, and you are fully capable of doing everything. anything and everything. Yep. Yeah, yeah. were you? Uh, kind of funny story, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I remember um, asking one time where my guardianship paperwork was. Like, I'm 18, so I get guardianship paperwork, right? Like, I'm my own guardian. Because <laughs> you've been working in this population for, yeah. for some time, and that was familiar to you, this yeah. guardianship paperwork. Right, and there's not. Not in no, real life, not. so no. kind of naive, funny story. Um, that is really funny, and I'm glad. Uh, thank you for sharing that. <laughs> it uh, humanizes you. You're not, you're not this uh, high-on-a-hill person uh, who's you know clearly in charge of her life. 
you also make mistakes. Thank you for. I may have being just so lost my expert position, but we're going with it. Well, in the podcast, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> so you didn't get your guardianship paperwork. I but, didn't. But that is, I'm guessing, something that does happen. That is something that happens um, when we turn 18, we become adults, and we graduate high school, and then we're just expected to carry all of that. Um, education and experience into adulthood and know what to do with it. And I think that 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 timeline is somewhat extended for a person with intellectual disability. Um, they have the option to remain in the education system until they're 22, at least in the state of Nevada. I'm 20, not... 21 and 364 days, right? Something yep. like that, like up to the 22nd birthday. Right. Yeah. Like their graduation isn't necessarily in June. Right. Um, if they choose to remain in the education system. Mm -hmm. After that, um, life kind of changes. There's some options. Um, and this is all dependent upon the, the spectrum and where they land on that continuum of mild to severe. Certainly, and family support and access to right. life, just like you or I might. You know, some of us go to Harvard and some of us go to North Central University. It's, oh, are you not saying that North Central University is like Harvard? Um, not exactly, oh, okay. right? Um, I'm, I love North Central, by the way. I do too. Hi, Dr. But Kelly. <laughs> but I'm not Ivy League. Right, right. No, there is a different. There is a difference for sure. Yeah, for sure. So it just depends, you know, when a when a person ages out of the education system or graduates from high school, whichever it might be for them, um, what their life looks like varies significantly. Um, there, they might. Enter a vocational setting where they learn work skills, maybe under the trainer or the training of um, a supervisor or something of an informal coach or counselor. Who are these people that do the training? Where do they come from? Um, the state re state funded resources. State funded resources, vocational rehabilitation, um, okay. regional centers, um, which are state funded. Which are state funded again? Um, well, in part state funded. Right, right. Some some of it's federal, I guess too. True. So. There's also habilitative programs where people who aren't necessarily interested or capable of working in a competitive job out in the community will go for day training. Um, they might learn assembly work or something of that nature to help them build the foundational skills that they didn't necessarily receive in the educational system to help okay. them become functioning adults in the workplace. And to, to clarify, there's... People in the audience may have heard the term habilitative and wondered what that is because we know what rehabilitative is. It's when you have an injury or, or some deficiency that departs you from normal functioning and then we rehabilitate you into the previous level from which you were departed through the injury or the, the interference. Habilitative services presume that, that, was, that the function was not there and we're just trying to get you up to speed Comparative to where you you should be developmentally or, or chronologically. Yeah, I can't even be I can't even be sure that habilitative is an actual word. I know that it's a Medicaid term yeah. language, um, but it's teaching. Right. Yeah. And 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 so if people with intellectual disabilities are uh, delayed in in areas, that means that maybe your standard run of the mill. 18-year-old, because we're talking about people who, you know, after they graduate high school and become adults, your standard run-of-the-mill 18-year-old will have certain, will be assumed to have certain things in place, like knows how to tie his shoes, get his breakfast, you know, in order, do his own laundry, maybe fill out a job application, take the bus. 
And so an 18 year old with an intellectual disability is delayed in that. And they may be functioning at a level of a, maybe a 13 or 14 year old. And so habilitative resources are needed to catch that person up to wherever they need to be to be a fully functioning adult, quote unquote. And you can't see the air quotes that I'm putting up here, but um, a, a quote unquote adult. By societal expectations. Uh, but, right, right, right. And of course, that's all, all uh, you know, up for debate too. But the idea being that there are um, what we would call normal, quote unquote, expectations of people at certain ages. And so if you're behind, then we want to catch you up. That would be habilitative as opposed to um, being, you know, say a person with a traumatic brain injury or TBI. That would be rehabilitative in, mm-hmm. in many regards. Yeah, and as as these individuals reach adulthood, some of those support networks that were pre-existing and um, offered to them in the educational system will follow them into adulthood and kind of provide a protective oversight. So if this person um, is putting themselves, others at harm or, um, or doing things that are grossly detrimental to their quality of life, then... Um, either a close family member or a public agency like the public guardian through Mm -hmm. the county might pursue guardianship over them to help them make their own choices. Aside from that, it is assumed, just like you or I, that we become our own guardians without paperwork um, when we turn 18. So not to scare the audience because it sounds very scary to say that people who are uh, grossly detrimental to themselves or others are are at at risk of harm. What are some of these things? Because they're they're not, it's not like they're going to go set things on fire. Some, some might because out of sheer accident, but it's not necessarily that level. What, what, have, what do you see? It, it could be something as simple as unable to manage their own medications, right? unable to manage their finances. Um, impulsivity, impulsivity. walking into the street without looking. That was actually the example that I was thinking of. Um, I read minds. Whoa. Just, just kidding. Just yours. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it's, it's the a complete inability to to make decisions that are conducive with living. Okay, and safely. And if, and if I'm a random audience member hearing this for the first time, I might think, "Wow, a person with an intellectual disability needs support services in perpetuity, forever and ever, till they die, and of old age or whatever else." Uh, but that's not necessarily true either, because no. sometimes what we want to do is do these what are called supported living arrangements or independent living arrangements. Uh, and part of the habilitation is to catch them up to a reasonable level where they can function on their own, correct? Yeah, certainly. I think just like um, mental health therapists are, we endeavor to work ourselves out of work. Absolutely. Absolutely. And there is a, a percentage of the population that, that, that just never will. And, and we acknowledge that. But we don't want to take away hope either by simply branding someone and labeling them saying, oh, little Johnny's never going to make it. And uh, let's just, you know, flood him with resources so he never has to either. So part of what you do with your company, as I understand it, is that you, you ideally you envision every individual you treat as having some possibility of improving, even if it's incrementally uh, throughout their lifespan. And we don't ever want to just warehouse people. Definitely. I think that actually, I think Jesse Lott has spoke to this in a previous podcast and maybe not, maybe I got this from supervision with him, but it speaks to a power differential. Um, in our position as support teams, we innately have more power than the individual. 
um, that we're supporting. And so without pairing that with empathy and compassion, mm-hmm. we we might actually do real harm by trying to protect another person. We could almost apply that to multiple systems, be they uh, care systems, uh, family systems, governmental systems, business and uh, occupational systems. The people who, quote-unquote, have the power do have a duty to have compassion and, and acknowledge that they're there to elevate and not simply contain or, or restrict or, as you put it, you know, uh, keep people out of harm's way. Uh, sometimes, sometimes going into harm is a good thing because you learn where your limits are. We don't want to necessarily parade yeah. people into dangerous situations, but we want to educate along the way for sure. Right. I think that that speaks again to maybe part one of this series where we spoke to um, dignity of risk. Mm-hmm. And that is, you know... It's a neat phrase, by the way. I like that. Thanks. Um, I'm sure I didn't make it up, but... You can take credit if you'd like, until right. somebody sues you. <laughs> I'm not taking credit for this. <laughs> <laughs> um, so if I leave my purse in the shopping cart and someone walks away with it, mm-hmm. um, I put my... I have, I have the right to make that choice, whether it be positive or negative, and that doesn't need, mean that I cannot be my own guardian. It just means that I need to learn from my choices. And people with um, support teams are sometimes enabled by their support systems because mm-hmm. they're they're cared for so well. Yeah. And so giving um, the people that we support the dignity of risk to have um, rights and pair that with responsibility. And some of those rights include the right to feel pain. Definitely. Like if you fail to budget correctly or you... Lock your keys repeatedly in your car when you leave it. I may be projecting there. But uh, sometimes I learn from my mistakes and sometimes I don't. I love the dignity of risk. I like uh, honoring people's uh, path. I like honoring their own dignity. I like all that stuff that you brought up. As we wrap up here, uh, you look like you wanted to say something. Maybe I should pause and let you say it. No? Um, Just taking a breath. Well, I... I really like to throw yield theory in there, right? And yeah. just meeting another person where they're at and how how beautiful that is. And um, it's, it's absolutely necessary as we interact with one another, whether we are dealing with a person with an intellectual disability in a care setting or running into someone we might not particularly like at the grocery store. Mm-hmm. And yield theory coming from? Dr. Christian Conti. Yes. Uh, more available at drchristianconti.com. Or you can just Google yield theory, uh, and I'm sure he'll appreciate you bringing that up. But we like to give attribution where it is is, uh, due. So um, thanks. I hope this was enlightening. As always, the the Naga Notes podcasts are supposed to be informative and useful, never a substitute for psychotherapy professionally. But we do appreciate the listening audience paying attention and tuning in and, uh, you know, education, because that's what Naga Notes is here for. It's to educate and enrich your noggin on matters of mental wellness and some of that is intellectual disability wellness as well so thanks heather for joining us and appreciate your time in this three-part series and uh, maybe we'll have you back someday you uh, you did a good job thank you for letting me speak about what i'm passionate you for. clearly are you clearly are and i appreciate that i appreciate your passion I appreciate being part of the zephyr team and uh if you want to shoot us a question info at zephyrwellness.org or info at nogginnotes.com are the ways to do that on behalf of the Zephyr Wellness team, including Heather Milligan and the Noggin Notes. Guys, uh, I wish you great mental wellness, and we will see you back next time. Thanks. Thanks.